Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Chapter 10 of the book of Revelation brings us relief and hope, like the light of the sun that shines in the middle of an earth-shaking storm. All the trouble in the world stems from the simple fact that men have lost sight of Jesus Christ. At this point in the tribulation, one half of the population on earth is dead. At this point in the tribulation, men have ruled out Christ because Satan has provided them with a more exciting Messiah. A counterfeit Messiah known as the Antichrist, one that people can see, touch, and hear. And instead of being called to faith, to trust in a God that promised to return and set his world right, the world today is hastening in this direction of the coming satanic kingdom. You know, for centuries, men believed the theories of astronomy as given by the Greek philosophers. The writings of Aristotle and Ptolemy were considered to be the absolute standard, the truth, and to challenge them was almost considered to be scientific heresy. Men were expected to believe without debate that the earth was the center of the universe and that the planets moved in perfect circles. But then they had a problem because not everything fit with this idea, not everything fit with this theory that the earth was the center of the universe. So men started coming up with different great theories to explain what looked like the retrograde motion of Mars and to explain things like the Earth alternating between day and night. There was all these little inconsistencies that did not fit, and astronomy was stuck as a science. Men did not have the key to understand because they ignored the centrality of the sun. And then came these guys, Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo. They put the sun in its proper place. They put it at the center of our solar system. And it was established that the earth and the planets, they revolve around the sun. That the true path of the planets is not a perfect circle, but it's an ellipse, not a circle. And then when they discovered this, they started realizing that everything fell into place perfectly. Copernicus and his followers won lasting fame simply by giving the sun in the sky its rightful place. And while we're talking about the sun, S-U-N, let's talk about the son of God, S-O-N. The world has forgotten the centrality of the son of God. They have forgotten that he is the center of everything. And if you want to know why this world is such a mess when you turn on the news, here it is. This is the reason. Because men have put themselves as the center instead of Jesus Christ, thinking that we are just here by the blind workings of chance or of evolution. The creator of the heavens and of the earth, 
He has been pushed out of the minds of men and he's been replaced, replaced with this idea that the solution to all of our world problems is a one world government. And this is why you hear people today talking about being world citizens, global citizens. These people don't even know or understand what they're talking about. The world has lost sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. And since everything revolves around him, the chaos is seen everywhere. In chapter 10 of Revelation, a big part of the text, a big part of the purpose of this chapter is to help us put Jesus Christ back in the center, to help us understand the centrality of Jesus Christ when it comes to how we live. It is to help us to understand the centrality of the Son in God's redemptive plan for the world and for his creation. In chapter 10 of Revelation, we have come face to face with several mysteries that have confused many, many people. There are millions of people on earth this morning that struggle with the mystery of a silent heaven. Why doesn't God explain what is going on? Does this mean that God is not concerned? Or even worse, does this mean that God is unable to do anything about all the problems that exist today? Evil seems to be everywhere. Evil seems to triumph. Justice is being redefined. People have become cruel. They've become self-centered. They've become unloving, always promoting themselves. There's an increase in crime, violence, and people are asking the question, why do we live in a world like this? Why? Why doesn't God do something about it? What is wrong with a God who cannot run the world any better than this? So these are the questions that we face in this chapter. And when we looked at chapters 8 and 9, we saw the disasters that are yet to come upon the world. But now we have this intermission, if you will, a parenthesis that comes in between the judgments of the sixth and the seventh trumpets. John starts by telling us in Revelation in verse one, he says, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was on his head and his face was like the sun and his feet were like the pillars of fire. And he had a little book open in his hand and he said it, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. At the sounding of the fifth and the sixth trumpets, John witnessed several powerful, wicked, fallen angels leading these armies, if you remember, leading these armies that inflicted unparalleled torment and destruction. There was the angel of the abyss that headed up an army of demons permitted to torment the people of the earth. Then there were the four angels of death bent on destroying a third of humanity. And with these horrific sights and sounds of these fallen angels and their legions of demons still in our minds, suddenly verse one tells us of a mighty angel that came down from heaven. What John is describing in verse 1 is the contrast of this mighty, mighty angel of God and the horrifying description of the demons in chapter 9. 
This angel was clothed with a cloud, a rainbow on his head, a face shining like the sun, feet like pillars of fire. And all these things are described here to help the reader know that this angel belongs to God. And some people think that this is God. Some people think that this is Christ. But let me just say a few things about that. Christ is never called an angel in the New Testament. He's never called an angel in the New Testament. And Christ is going to return to the earth at his second coming. But this angel returns before then. He's described as coming down from heaven, which it is never ever said that Christ comes down from heaven in the middle of the tribulation. A rainbow crowns his head. Boy, that's a beautiful picture if you understand what the rainbow is. This takes us back not to the perversion of it, what it is today, but it takes us back to Genesis 9, indicating God's covenant of mercy with humanity. The rainbow is a perfect picture of God's grace. Life storms may hit us, ripping apart our plans and flooding us with problems. And usually the problems we have are the problems that we have made for ourselves. But God's grace is a promise that we will not be destroyed. Just as a rainbow was his promise that he would never send a flood again to devastate the earth and destroy it, the rainbow is God's gift to us to remind us of his greater gift, his amazing grace. His grace is always, always there to draw upon. The character of God has not changed from the days of Noah. It's not like God just somehow changed since he was on the earth with Noah. His grace and his mercy endure even in the midst of judgment. And verse 2 tells us now that this angel stood on both land and sea and held a little book in his hand. This book is better described as a scroll. It's not the same scroll that Christ unsealed in the chapters before this in Revelation, but instead our minds should be reminded of the scroll eaten by Ezekiel, where Ezekiel told us this. He said, now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like what? Honey in sweetness. The prophet Ezekiel was told to eat the scroll, just as John was told to eat the scroll. It represented receiving the word of God into their innermost being in order that they could proclaim it with confidence. Now, back in Revelation, the angel standing with one foot on the land and one foot on the sea, it conveys the idea to us of God's authority over creation. An angelic representative that is from God interfering and intervening in the affairs of the earth. But then this angel, he cries out with a loud voice. He roars like a lion. A lion roars just before he overpowers his prey. And this angel roaring is another indicator that God is about to overpower his enemies. And when this angel cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. This scene must have been a great encouragement to John. It should be a great encouragement to us. 
because it helps us to see that the destruction upon the earth, even in this great tribulation, is still absolutely under the firm control of God. He is working out everything that happens according to his time. And then verse 4 tells us, it says, Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The seven thunders spoke audible voices with a clear message that John heard. But a voice from heaven specifically told him, instructed John to seal up the words of the seven thunders. This voice was probably, probably the voice of God. And one day in heaven, we may learn what these thundering voices said. But until then, we can only assume that it must have been some terrifying judgment message from God. And for some reason, God does not want us to know what these judgments are. Only John knows what the seven thunders uttered, but a thunder is a symbol of the judgment of God. And if you want a possible clue, if you want a clue as to what these seven thunders declared, I refer you to Psalm 29, because in Psalm 29, seven times the voice of the Lord thunders over the earth in judgment. Check it out later today. Maybe it's related. But it tells us in Psalm 29 this, it says, The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. But these seven thunders in Revelation are sealed. They're not for us to know. No, the Apostle Paul had something like this happen to him, didn't he? That there was a time when he was caught up into heaven and he heard, remember what he said? Inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Here's the point. There is a truth from God that he does not want us to know yet. Deuteronomy 29 tells us the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So this is why we're to carefully study the things already revealed in his word. But even this, it's just the tip of the iceberg of all there is to know about our God. Alfred Hitchcock, some of you remember him, he once told the story about a king who was granted two wishes. His first wish was to see the future. But when he saw everything that lay ahead, the beauty and the pain of life, he immediately asked for his second wish, that the future be hidden from him. And then Hitchcock said this, I thank heaven that tomorrow does not belong to any man. It belongs to God. These are some of the things in Scripture that we just can't handle. And perhaps that is the case with these seven thunder judgments that is revealed to us in Revelation 10. And I get the idea from the text that they must be so bad that it's better for us not to know what they are ahead of time. And yet in the midst of it all, John sees something that encourages him. He sees something that brings him great comfort. He sees a mighty angel with a little book or scroll. Let's read it, starting in verse 5. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be no delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. 
Now, these verses right here are the key to chapter 10 in the book of Revelation. They're the central message to the book of Revelation chapter 10. It gives us a glimpse of what is to come yet in Revelation. And this mighty angel, he raises his hand to heaven and says that there will be no more delay. The raising of the hand looks back to this scene in Revelation. It is a sign that a solemn oath is about to be taken. A common gesture in the Jewish culture when a solemn oath is taken. Only by the sovereign authority of the eternal creator can this mighty angel of God make this declaration about how and when the mystery of God would be finished. The angel swore by God, the one who lives forever and ever and ever, the one who created heaven and all that it is in it, the one who created the earth and the sea. And I think the new King James is better on this. I think the King James misses it in verse six when it says that there should be time no longer. It's not saying that time would be abolished. That's not the idea. It should be translated here that there will be no longer a delay in explaining the mystery of God. Because God has been delaying for centuries his answers to the question of men. One of the first things as you read through the New Testament, one of the first things that you read in the book of Acts is that the very first Christians expected Jesus Christ to return in their day. Paul expected it in his lifetime. You see, the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ is a very important doctrine to our faith. It means that Christians have been looking for his return for 2,000 years. It could be today. It could be 100 years from now. We don't know. But at God's appointed time, he's going to return first for his church, then the judgments of God in the tribulation. And by the time of Revelation 10, six angels have already sounded their trumpets of judgment. And when the seventh angel sounds, the mighty angel of Revelation 10 teaches us that there will be no more delay. See, the final trumpet judgment will usher in the bold judgments described in Revelation 16. And then, then will be the second coming of Christ. And at his second coming, God is going to begin to reign on this earth. This angel, he took an oath that in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, which is the beginning of the final judgments on earth, there'd be no more delay. The mysteries of God are going to be finished. The mystery that was declared to his servants, the prophets. And after the seventh trumpet, there'll be no more delay in the unfolding of the events that lead up to Christ's return. It's going to happen like rapid fire. So what is this mystery we're talking about here in verse 7? What is the mystery? It is the fulfillment, hear me, of the many Old Testament passages by the prophets that refer to the glorious return of the Son of God and his establishment of his kingdom of righteousness and peace on earth. The time will come when Satan's no longer going to be in power. Amen. The time will come when Satan is no longer going to be in power. And the predictions of the Old Testament prophets are going to be fulfilled. Do you remember the words of Revelation 6.10 where the tribulation martyrs cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. This mighty angel announces that God's response to those prayers will soon come to an end. 
It is the day when the prayer we've all been praying for so long will be answered. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, this message, this message is more critical to the church today than you could imagine. It is the message found in the prophets. You guys remember in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, there's a vivid description of how God will begin his kingdom on earth. He will call the nation of Israel back into prominence again. Speaking of the people of Israel, Ezekiel 36, it says this, I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I what will be your God. See, that's the message of the prophets. That's what the prophets have been predicting. Paul spent three chapters in Romans telling us that God is not done with the nation of Israel. First, he warns Gentile believers not to boast against Israel. But I would argue this. I would say this is exactly what some Christians are doing today when they teach that Israel will not have a future. When they teach that the promises of the Old Testament for Israel are now supposed to be spiritually applied to the church, that there's no future for Israel as a nation distinct from any other nations on the earth, they are openly violating the warning of Paul in Romans 11. These promises belong. They belong to the nation of Israel. And we as Gentiles are allowed in on them by the grace of God. Hear me on that, but they still, still belong to Israel. And in verse 25 of that great chapter, Paul says in Romans, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant. So many Christians are. You should not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. Put your own opinion aside. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Israel has experienced a hardening of the hearts until the full number, hear that phrase, the full number of the Gentiles has come in. But then look at what Paul says next in Romans. He says, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, I want you to be careful with this, okay? This is a little more deeper than you may be accustomed to, but I want you to track with this. When Paul says all Israel will be saved, let's, let's get specific. Let's talk about what he's talking about. He doesn't mean just salvation. He means delivered. He means rescued, rescued from the tribulation by the Messiah, the one who delivers. See, the statement that all Israel will be saved does not mean every Jew alive at Christ's return at his second coming is going to be regenerated. He doesn't mean that. Many of them are not going to be. And we know this. We can prove this from Scripture that God is going to judge Israel. And Ezekiel 20 speaks of this, that there will be unbelieving Israel at that time. God is going to establish his new covenant with regenerate Israel at that time. 
And this is the message of the prophets, which is why Paul quoted from Isaiah 59. Get to know some of these beautiful texts from the Old Testament that clearly describe the return of Israel to their land and their status as the people of God to fulfill the promises of God. God is going to restore the earth under the reign of Jesus Christ. And God announced to the prophets long ago that a king, a king would come, and he told them that the Messiah would bring peace to this world. You know, Isaiah talks about the animals at peace, the wolf and the lamb grazing together. Jeremiah 33, 15, look at what it says. It says, in those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He, he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And Ezekiel speaks of this. He speaks of the time when Israel will live in peace forever in her land. Ezekiel 37 verse 25 says, Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Daniel speaks about this time when God will set up an everlasting kingdom. Daniel 2, 44 records this. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to another people. And it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it's going to stand for what? Forever. It's going to stand forever. Daniel 9, 24 talks about a time when the Messiah would put an end to sin and bring in everlasting righteousness. The prophets looked forward to a time of worldwide blessing and peace. They looked forward to the coming kingdom of God. It's something that God's people, God's people have been waiting for. This has gone on for thousands of years. And so I want you to understand this. When the angel says in Revelation that the final judgments are coming, the final judgments are about to pass along with the return of Christ and his kingdom, it means something. And when the angel says that there's going to be no more delay, it means something. It means something exciting. And then in the very next chapter, we see the seventh angel sound his trumpet. No wonder this announcement had an effect upon John. Revelation 10 is a bit like the man who was known as a good husband. He was known as a, a good father. He loved his family faithfully. He was always one of these dads that was around. He was steady. He took care of them. His influence was central in everyone's life. But his family never fully appreciated the scope of his love until one day they found his journal. And when they opened up his journal, they could see the backstory to their memories. Their happy experiences in life, they were actually planned in detail and they were carefully executed. Their father even reflected in his journal about how glad he was that he gave his wife and his children such joy. You see, when they could see the backstory, these previously hidden details in his journal, the family was filled with a new kind of appreciation and love for this husband and father. They were welcomed into the quiet place of an intentional planning and loving execution of that plan. They could see how they were central to everything that this father had done. Thumbing through the journal, they realized his love for them engulfed their entire experience. And I want you to hear this point. For the child of God, 
for those that have new life in Jesus Christ. This is the experience we should have as we read the New Testament. In places like Ephesians 1, it is as if the children of God are permitted to thumb through the journal of our Heavenly Father. Because when we read through it, we find out that the experiences that we enjoy so much were carefully and intricately planned. You see, God has set his love on his people before the foundation of the world. In our lives, the riches that we have in Jesus Christ, they're not accidents. It's not like we just stumbled into them. And Revelation 10 looks forward to the day when all our Father's plans are brought to completion. So John then heard the voice of them speak again, starting in verse 8, where it says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. As the angel fell silent, the booming voice, the booming voice from heaven spoke again. John had been given a strange a very strange but significant assignment. Take the scroll from the hand of the angel and eat it. It tasted sweet in his mouth, he reports, but it would make his stomach bitter. See, John learned obedience in his old age. He did exactly as he was told. But this takes us back to Ezekiel 2, doesn't it? Because when he ate the scroll, it was a symbol of the complete appropriation of the prophetic message. When Ezekiel opened his mouth, he would utter the very words of God against the people of Israel. And it wasn't too much longer after Ezekiel ate the scroll that God brought down his judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. And so here in Revelation 10, John was told to fully consume the message of judgment. The prophecy, it tastes sweet at first. It tastes sweet because these are the promises of God. It's the Father's journal and seeing his purpose and seeing his plan for us. But then as John takes it in, his stomach starts to turn sour and bitter. Why? He takes in the message that God's judgments, God's judgments on earth are not done yet. There was more to come in the Father's plan for the whole earth. John was then told he must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. This is a watershed moment in the book of Revelation because I want you to hear this. From this point forward, the judgments of God are much worse. Harry Adams of Fayetteville, North Carolina, wrote the following. And I want you to listen to what he said. He wrote, recently my wife and my daughter were reading Psalm 37. When we came to the fourth verse that says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I asked a simple question. I asked if this was true for me. I am crippled by Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, which is progressive and a fatal neurological illness. In the eight years that I've had ALS, it's taken my voice. It's robbed me the use of my limbs. It's also forced us 
because of medical expenses out of our lovely home. Is the promise of fulfilled desires true for me and for the millions of other believers who have suffered their plans and dreams shattered in life? And then he answers this and he says, yes, it's true. Exceedingly so, because I desire a healthy body and Jesus promises me a body that is powerful, incorruptible and glorious. I desire a home that is beautiful and spacious and he is preparing such a home for me now in a city whose builder is God. I desire a world without crime, without lies, without violence and corruption. And he promises me a world where righteousness dwells eternally. I desire to be with those that I love. And he promises that I will be caught up together with them forever. I desire an end to my sorrow. And he promises me fullness of joy in his presence. I desire a heart so filled with love that there is no room for sin. And he promises to make me like Jesus when I'm in heaven. I desire a ministry. Listen to this. I desire a ministry and he promises I will serve him eternally. And I desire a voice with which to praise him. And he promises I'm going to sing before his throne. Most of all, I desire to see him. And he promised me, me I will always behold his face. He will keep his promise to give me the desires of my heart. These are the sweet promises of the word of God to us. But the problem is, Christians, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world where there's violence and protests and all these things. And these bitter problems of life, sometimes these problems will sour, sour our stomachs. Because life in this world can get plenty bad even before the tribulation. It doesn't have to just get bad at the tribulation. It's going to get bad first especially as we get closer and closer. Revelation 10 is inviting us to internalize the word of God, knowing that there's going to be trials and struggles here in this life. But the promises of a better future remain for the child of God. And so sometimes we struggle on earth and we need to remember that evil is not a problem because God is too small, but rather it is because God is so great that we cannot expect to know what he's doing at every moment in our lives. As one author said, speaking about life, he said, quote, often I have not known where I was going until I was already there. I have had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me or I have gone to it mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. Often I receive better than I deserved. I am an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley. And yet for a long time looking back, I've been unable to shake off that feeling that I have been led. God directs his own through the dark valleys of life. But the trials and those afflictions for the short life that we're here on this life, in this Christian life on earth, they're only the prelude. They're only the opening credits to the eternal blessing, which will be the fulfillment of God's amazing grace to those who trust in Jesus Christ. I have noticed that many read the judgments of Revelation, and, and even in churches, they're virtually unmoved. They shrug their shoulders. Who cares about these predicted judgments? because they don't think it's going to affect them. But God is judging this world already, directing everything towards the day when his kingdom comes and his eternal truth invades our lives, whether we like it or not. 
You know, we flinch. We flinch a little bit when the word of God touches us personally. But see, that's exactly what I pray for. That's what I pray for, that you would consume the word of God, digest all his promises, and take in all the warnings, all the warnings to us as believers. And it's in Psalm 37 that we read these wonderful words of promise from David, and we'll close with this. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth for yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek, the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I believe with all my heart that the day is coming when the peace of Christ is going to rule this world once and for all. And I hope you believe it. And I hope you let his future coming build your faith in his eternal plan for you. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.